0: Sidewalks is an annual pop-up, storytelling, ideas and literature festival run by the Centre for Stories. On the 9th of October 2021, the third iteration of Sidewalks took over Perth and Northbridge with a curated whirlwind of talks, performances and readings. Special thanks to the sponsors that made Sidewalks possible in 2021. The Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries, Centre for Stories Founders Circle... Rainer Real Estate, and Aspen Corporate Financial Planning. Thanks also to our in-kind venue partners for the festival, Randall Humich, St George's Cathedral, and North Metropolitan TAFE. This recording is from Still and Yet, the finale event for Sidewalks 2021. It features writer and academic Elfie Shiyosaki in conversation with award-winning author, Kim Scott. My
1: name is Elfie Shiyosaki, and I'm a Nunga Yaru writer and academic. And I have been given the great privilege of yarning with Noongar novelist and academic Kim Scott for the finale event of Sidewalks 2021. For those of you who don't know, Sidewalks is an annual storytelling, literature and ideas festival run by the Centre for Stories. And the theme of Sidewalks 2021, still, is about taking a moment to reflect on uh, where we are to embrace community and to become still. This festival is held on Wajak Noongar Buja, on Wajak Noongar country. And I would like to acknowledge the Wajak people of the Noongar nation, their ancestors and elders. And I'd also like to acknowledge Wajak people as um, the keepers of the story cycles that are held here in the land and the water and the sky. Today, six events have run across the afternoon, including a bilingual poetry reading, an interview between a father and son, and a panel conversation about women and the triumph of ageing. I had um, <laughs> the privilege of attending the Northbridge block, and it was such a fun afternoon to wander around Northbridge into new spaces that were full of stories and the storytelling was full of heart and so moving. So it's been such a lovely afternoon. Uh, On behalf of the Centre for Stories, I would like to thank the sponsors that have made Sidewalks possible uh, this year. And those sponsors are the Department of Local Government, Sport and Cultural Industries, the Centre for Stories Founders Circle, Aspen Corporate Financial Planning and Rayner Real Estate. When the Centre for Stories first invited me to Young Kim, I was really excited to be given the opportunity to learn from a distinguished novelist and academic and someone who I greatly admire. It wasn't hard to write some questions for this evening because I think I already had a million for you. Uh, Kim Scott is a novelist and academic. He um, has written many novels and I have a short bio here about your your writing to read. Uh, His second novel, Benang from the Heart, won the 1999 West Australian Premier's Book Award, the 2000 Miles Franklin Literary Literary Award, and the 2001 Kate Chalice-Rakra Award. His third novel, That Dead Man Dance, also won the Miles Franklin Literary Award in 2011, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the West Australian Premier's Book Award. His most recent novel, Taboo, was a finalist for the 2018 Miles Franklin Literary Award and won the 2018 New South Wales Premier's Book Award and the 2019 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Indigenous Writing, among many other awards. (laughs) Um, Kim is currently a Professor of Writing at the School of Media Culture and creative arts at Curtin University. So this evening, Kim and I will be yarning about his writing craft and practice, and the potential for Aboriginal writing to contribute to cultural renewal, and perhaps the imagining of a future that recognizes sovereign people and sovereign stories. So this is how we're engaging with this theme of still. Kaya Kim. (laughs) Kaya.
2: Nichoqua, um, I wanted to say, keep talking, Elfie. It's smooth-talking woman. It's best. It's best like this if I don't say much at all. Elfie keeps going.
1: We're all here to to listen to you. Would you like to introduce yourself and your work to us?
2: I think you have already, Elfie introduced. <laughs> I, for some reason, um, if it's not too sort of personal, I also like to say other than the Noongar novelist academic thing. Um, My father was the only surviving child, he died in his 30s, to a woman born early in the 20th century in Rabelsul, a place infamous for um, environmental destruction and a massacre that occurred there late. 19th century, and that, for and the, that the silence of my my father and perhaps my family, I think informs in some way um, a lot of my writing. hadn't really planned to introduce myself like that, um, but there you are.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Kim. So, I wanted to. Um, I've really enjoyed actually looking back at your work this week as I've prepared...
2: It's very tonight. sweet of you to say this. <laughs> a lot of novels.
1: Um, <laughs> your first novel, True Country, was published in 1999 and it tells the story of a young uh, school teacher who travels to a remote community in the northwestern region of Australia and you've since published many other novels. Um, could you tell us what... Uh, first encouraged your writing and perhaps what has sustained it for as long as it has. And to borrow maybe a question from one of the other sessions that I was at this afternoon is could you tell us, in reflecting on what encourages your writing, perhaps who you write for?
2: That's three questions, Elfie. <laughs> And And I'm old and I'm nervous, so I don't know if I'll be able to remember them all. What started me writing? Yeah, what first, that was one of them.
1: What first encouraged your writing? Mm-hmm.
2: I think my writing comes from the, um, the ceremony of innocence, the solitary pleasure of playing with paper and pens. I used to, as a kid, I used to draw almost non-stop and that moved um, in my late teens, early 20s, I think that moved into writing. And then... And I've always been a reader, so those things go together in my experience. And strangely enough, at one stage when I was a teacher of English to high school kids, teenagers, I've said this a few times, but I realised the manual arts teacher could build a house and fix his car and the home economics teachers could put on a good feed for people. Um, and I was an English teacher, meant to be teaching about stories and writing, and I had not much idea about it at all. Um, so in fact that that is what pushed me to try and work out how to get published, how to take writing seriously. and i never i don't think I quite achieved it while I was teaching like, a few poems. I started with poems and short stories and then I started to feel like. I had some sort of experiential knowledge to offer about writing other than just getting it out of books, which you'd think makes sense, but it, 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 didn't, it didn't give the experience of what it meant to be a writer. Second, uh, sorry, second question.
1: What was that second question again? What has sustained your writing?
2: This is why I said, Elfie, that's... A, Beautiful of you to say. I've written lots of novels because my writing actually ebbs and flows. I, I think, um, and I have long, unfortunately, quite dry periods, and I it's and I do find it difficult to do sustained writing if I'm uh, got other jobs on the go, particularly that involve strategic or tactical planning sort of thinking. So it's. I think it's largely the pleasure in the artifice of language, the structuring and shaping of language, the beauty and the rhythms of that, and the, the chance to communicate in a way that you really can't in any other way, That the, the intimacy of writing i'm very respectful not only am i very respectful and grateful for you all turning up tonight but those of you that have um read certainly my novels i'm i'm, I'm grateful for that because that, that's a that's quite a few hours in a way that we've spent together collaborating on on, on building a story building always an alter- alternative world and that very privileged sort of communication that takes effort, reader and writer, and the vulnerability that's in there, and the artifice and the play, and that can lead, I think, to really important and sometimes almost sacred communication. I think that's what... the delight and the importance of that, I think, is what keeps me at it. And the third question... (laughs) Even I can't remember the third question. <laughs> I can.
1: I can. Check <laughs> nice. uh, It's borrowing a question from earlier today, which I really enjoyed um, listening to the responses um, to, which was, who do you write for?
2: Yeah. Uh, in, in a large way, I write for someone quite like myself, some sort of ideal reader. But then I... I you know, people talk about... Be a good ancestor, be a good descendant. I, I'd like to think, and this this relates to being a Noongar novelist. You know, there's 10% survived the first 50 years, something like that. And then, and and a great propensity to move into literature. In in strangely enough, perhaps in traditional Noongar culture, as I understand it. So there's all those there's all those voices that'll never be heard. There's all there's all that wisdom and ways of looking at the world that will never be shared, perhaps. Um, and I, so I think that's... In a way, I sort of write, write for, the, for those people. There's a lovely old Noongar song that I, that I won't uh, perform just now. But in effect, it starts with uh, language play. It's a little bit of... A, it's just playing with sounds then it talks about sounds tripping off the end of one's tongue, sound and language always moving away from the inner self. And it ends with a refrain saying something like, you can come up with all sorts of cultural products, but your old people will always understand you. So in a way, I think that, that something like something like spirit, I suppose. a a spiritual family. All that sounds very twee, so I don't know how to retract it now I've seen it. I'm I'm more rigorous than that sounded, honestly.
1: I think think we're allowed to retract anything we say tonight. Um, You talked about that kind of delight that you feel when you're playing with language and and developing work. Is that a part of your writing craft how would you describe that process that you follow to write
2: your novels I love it when I can get when I get lost I love it. it's the same with reading and writing it's even better when you so, as if you're surfacing and like where am I where have I been I love that enormously the and that's sort of first early draft stuff when you just get a sort of flow happening um, I also like I, I also like the, the shaping of things. I read a lot of, uh, I read, I read a lot of what I write, certain fiction, aloud. So sound matters to me and rhythm matters to me. Um, I don't know if I'm quite clever enough to work structurally as well as I'd like to, but I do like, I do like when it, everything clicks into place, the structural bit, particularly of a, of a novel. when it all comes together. (laughs) Whatever you think.
1: Okay, so tonight um, Kim is going to be reading to us from some of his novels. Kim, would you like to do your first one?
2: You'd suggest that we start in reverse order, I think, (laughs) huh? Yeah, you did, and I thought that was really clever. Okay. (laughs) Without knowing why, so perhaps we'll try it like that. Ah oh, yes, yes, maybe. So I'll I'll read an extract from early in, in taboo, and this is this is part of the, the earliest bits that, that of the novel that came into formation. There, there's a so it's the first few pages. There's a truck has just gone screaming down a hill um, through the main street of the town kind of like Ravensthorpe, if anyone's been there, but not quite the same. Uh, and it crashes at the bottom of the of the main street in a river valley without much of a river there in the sand. Uh, I'll start it. Birds flap into the sky, screeching indignation. The truck's just gone over on its side, the motor hiccups, stops, wheels spin on as good wheels do. From a distance, the aloof view, say, of those birds, a pattern is dissolving and reforming again, bunches of people at the museum, pub, cafe, roadhouse, the little park, then all moving together and flowing down the street. A car stutters Ahead, pulls up at the road edge of the river crossing. A bystander, perhaps even you, dear reader, might anticipate an explosion, a great ball of flame, but there is no explosion. Already, the so recently startled birds are beginning to resettle among the slow and incrementally turning leaves of the patient trees a human figure emerges from the window of the truck's cab door. A girl, a young woman perhaps. Standing easily on the side of the cab, she bends to help someone exit. A strong young thing then, athletic. The other person seems much older or injured. Having been helped, hauled from the cab, he immediately sits down on its still-closed door. Hurt, tired... He looks around, back into the cab, and then tentatively makes his way down after the young woman, though less nimbly. The two of them stamp their feet on solid ground, as if reassuring themselves. They listen to the wheels spinning and a luxurious whispering sound, wheat slowly spilling from the vehicle. Come close, closer. A small pile of wheat is growing beside the trailer, fed by a thin, grainy spout from the upper corner of the tarpaulin. Golden, it has both the look and sound of great wealth. The tarp slips a little so that the thin stream becomes a golden shoot, and then the tarpaulin pulls away like an upside-down stage curtain and a wide, low wave of wheat makes the girl step back once, twice, three times. She stops, transfixed by something in the trailer as the wheat continues to flow around and behind her. Imagine a figure sitting in a deep and rapidly draining bath. Head and shoulders appear, then the upper torso, knees, in the trailer, beginning with the dome of a dark skull, figure is being revealed. The figure slides a little, shifts. The tarpaulin slips again. The golden grain continues to flow across the ground. The figure begins to rise. It must be the moving grain, but it seems as if the legs lever it upright and it steps from the upturned trailer and stands swaying with the high weight of its skull. The girl, the figure, they stand facing one another, feet invisible beneath the grain. The wheat dust, the light of the sandstorm, the after-effects of the accident. What is it the girl sees? Something like a skeleton, but not of bone, at least not only bone. The limbs are timber, the skull is timber too, dark and burnished. And ivory dentures, stained as if by chomping, inhaling, gustatory human life, grin exultation. A gauze of gold dust and light moat swirls from its broad shoulders and around the rippling cage of its ribs. Long shanks lever the pelvis itself, a solid uh, lever. The pelvis itself, a solid thing of smooth river stone and timber glowing at its centre of gravity. Kneecaps, too, are smooth stone, but the rest is bone and polished timber and woven grass, seeds and brightly coloured feathers and even fencing wire. Cords of sinew of neatly knotted fishing line and, is it human hair? Meet moistly at each mobile joint. The figure sways toward the girl, led by the heavy skull and then glides to her, arms low and open, each beautifully defined and delicate hand held palm up. Its whole being is a smile. Hands clasp, firm, warm, uncalloused. And now the wind gathers strength. A melody plays across the visual rhythm of those ribs. Hollowed, meticulously carved spaces begin to whistle and timber limbs begin an accompaniment. Thunder cracks and booms. It rumbles in the riverbed. The figure teeters, begins to move, to slowly fall apart and maybe tumble.
1: Thank you, Kim. A beautiful reading and such a haunted... Kind of introduction to Taboo, I think that is a vivid part of the story that I still haven't forgotten. Um, so your novel, Taboo, tells the story of a group of Noongar people returning to their ancestral country on the south coast of Western Australia. And I love the way that it explores many things, um, the ways in which language loss, language preservation and the potential for language revitalization intermingle with one with each other. Could you tell us a bit more about the story within Taboo?
2: The story within Taboo, I suppose it's... We might have a different idea of the story within Taboo there. But certainly that figure that I just read about, that's part of it in the sense that it's in part animated by people, a community reforming itself and coming together in some way to commemorate, commemorate reconcile themselves to, to talk about an historical massacre. The figure's also animated by uh, atmospheric sounds, the rumble in the river, the thunder booming, is an instrument for the voice of that sort of country. And it's all also made up of things deeply indigenous to the place, the river stones, the timber, and things of now like fishing line and whatever. That's part of that's part of the story within taboo for me, community, moving back to ancestral country, addressing history, trying themselves out as instruments for the language, indigenous to that place, and seeing what sort of trans transformations will occur themselves in their community and, and in a way of being, the possibilities that might blossom from that occasion. It's probably the most... I don't know. There's, there's quite a lot of autobiographical material in Taboo with different characters um, inhabiting little narratives that have been an important part of uh, myself as an individual, but also a collective, a community moving back on country and working with language, as I've just been talking about. It's not the same as what happens in taboo, but that sort of experience informs So it's, um, yeah, a lot of, I, th- I think a lot about decolonisation, a big word, but great truth in it, I think, and um, yeah, poss- possibly transformation.
1: Do you think of taboo as a form of truth telling about, um, how Noongar people on the south coast experienced histories of violence and colonisation?
2: Certainly. And one of the reasons I attempt to write novels and attracted to novels is truth telling, but not in a way of, I'll tell you my truth and I don't want to listen to your truth, so-called truth. Um, a, a truth that allows for conviction, but also doubt and vulnerability. That that sort of truth, a truth that you um, unpack or mine or or render through 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 care with with language. That sort of truth-telling, and it and allows for hesitation. And, and allows doubt into the mix, you know, that un, unsureness.
1: <laughs> is there a pathway that's carved out in taboo for how we might return to country that is considered taboo for us?
2: Uh, that's, 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 that's how it's autobiographical. There's, there's a scene in taboo of a couple of people sleeping at the massacre homestead. Um, There are things I've done to confront the idea that this place is taboo. And just thinking about it, I was thinking, that can't be be right. That can't be be right. Um, And as in the reality, and I can't remember if I used it in the novel or not, um, my before we were about to sleep in the murder the historical murderers beds he's my cousin said to me what are what are what are the noongars going to say about us doing this and i said well if we're any we any anyway connected to noongars living here if it is indeed our family they're going to be they're going to be happy to see us back surely um And as in taboo, I'm giving it all away here. As we left, it was spooky. Of course, it was spooky to stay there. And there was no electricity and it's the old glass. So images are tremulous in Campbell light and all that sort of atmospheric stuff. But when we left the next day, and this has absorbed a lot of my thinking we went through a little stream and a couple of mallee now came out and stood in front of the car and we had to stop the car. I'll abbreviate this little yarn. A bit later we got going again and a big, you say mob of emus or a flock of emus or what? a big group of emus forced us to stop the car again by racing across, shaking their tail feathers at us. Digging up great lumps of dirt as they accelerated away. And then when we got out to the gate, leaving this property, there was an eagle on each gatepost. And so you make we had to make eye contact with these eagles before they lifted themselves away. And Noongars that I know would talk about that's that's the spirits of the old people saying they're glad you're back. So those taboos trying to um, start with some element of scepticism and attempt to articulate what must be the truths in those sort of experiences. And there's there's more of that that very much come from a language project I work with trying to rebuild community around language and story and revisiting country to get over that notion of taboo it seemed to me comes not only from the killing but also the apartheid like legislation that made it very difficult for people to get back and come to terms with what had happened in you know home country which is you you can't stay away from I would think 1901, and it's based around Ravensor. 1901, there was 11 Noongars, the police books rec- record as being in Ravensauk, my ancestor being one of them. So they, they were there within 20 years of nearly... Of, ..of many people being killed. So people would have wanted... You have to get back on home country. But the longer that's prevented, the more and more it becomes a taboo. Well, this is how I think of it. Uh, not everyone agrees with those ideas. So, yes, that's part of what's in taboo.
1: I find so much hope in that, that even though land has been scarred in the way that it has, that there are pathways that we can follow to return to it.
2: Yeah, yeah and, and maybe that, that as we... Recover language authentically and sincerely as against just performing it. As we recover language and move and gather, regather as community, it may well be that that language, if not ourselves, is a catalyst for that sort of change and transformation. I think, I think, I hope, I rely on the truth of.
1: Um, By chance, I heard you on the radio this week, and um, I heard you... By chance, that was part of your study and preparation. (laughs) (laughs) I was sneaking off for a lunch and uh, was in the car at lunchtime, and I heard your yarn for Off Track on ABC Radio National, and they did a story about Kukunara, poor Raventhorpe, and you discussed this concept of... Um, possibilities of blossoming, and you, you've talked about that just before, this idea that um, we're able to renew Noongar senses of place um, or shared senses of place. Would you share some more with us about that sort of philosophy in a way of, of yeah. blossoming?
2: Oh, I'd love to, Elfie. You're doing a great job, Elfie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's making me feel important up <laughs> here. Um, I'd like to, but it's... It's kind of difficult without getting all portentous and abstract. But it's sort of about uh, the idea that uh, country, we're we're all, each of us is a unique manifestation of the possibility of country, of the spirit of country. And that makes it interesting to think about biological diversity and also not a static so-called traditional Aboriginal of the world view that's as if a blueprint, the dream is a blueprint that's being repeated. Don't go with that. I think you're improvised from strong traditions. And it's also, I, I read an account, in this is where I try not to get too abstract, a theologian, I believe he is, a book by a fellow, Tony Swain, in a book, A Place for Strangers, has a wonderful chapter, Talking about the notion that time is not a major organising principle in, a, in an Aboriginal classical Aboriginal world view dismisses that as just timeless, just negative thing, and then goes on to talk about these abiding stories, these the rhythms of abiding stories in landscape creation stories, and that they carry the rhythms of place not only the the rhythms of flora and fauna and moon and tides and all that but somehow they carry all those and that from that rhythmic sense of place even time can be dealt with in terms of it's it's the intersection of different rhythms that's the now is the intersection of different rhythms and you can, therefore, talk about a future in that same way, just from those rhythms. And it's, also, it's in that discussion where he talks about these, these billowing or blossoming, I think he uses the word billowing, of possibilities. that are. And as a south coast Noongar, it's very, it's very interesting to think about some of those notions, and I have in a number of the novels... Of, of the ocean meeting the land on the south coast those relentless swells and billowing of foam and hanging there for a moment and then resettling and i think there's it's something that comes up in lots of the old songs the little that i know of them that 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 sort of process that continual blossoming falling back again and then some other shape some other possibility possibility will emerge and i find that i find that very um productive history is not over yet
0: we can talk about and that
2: there's all these other manifestations that come from increasingly uh, rich experience and traditions that we continue to build and gather so i told you it was hard to be, be, be With that one, you
1: did very well.
2: Hard to be piffy.
1: <laughs> Would you like to do another reading for us? Certainly. Um, we, we have time for for one more, I think.
2: Try and slow it down, so we haven't got time. <laughs> <laughs> Humble for glasses. Okay, so I'll read from that dead man dance Um, what pages did I say I'd do? I read this section because, um, in the acknowledgements of That Dead Man Dance, I talk about working with language and classical Noongar narratives as much as I was able to, and seeing the enormous agency of protagonists in these stories and how that, at first, clashed with the archival uh, expressions of that time, but then it, those those classical Noongar texts helped me read against the grain and see other, other things in the archives that I might not up so quickly otherwise. Um, I would imagine, oh, and a little bit about this, for a start. It also helped me see, um, read Noongar texts in the archives, stuff like Daisy Bates had collected, with great interest. And I was, there was some of them started with English language, uh, which is what I riff on a little bit in this extract. And there was also one that, if I can remember, by a woman, Written about her man being chained up, her men being chained up, taken to Albany to be sent to Rottenest Island. Demanga, Manga, Kichu, Miao, Wara Bin, Bonak, King Georgetown. So it had King Georgetown, this colonial place name, carried within the frame of Nungar language and storytelling. And I thought, wow, that's a that's a different way of approaching this. So this little extract starts with a little riff on the English in one of those songs. I imagine sailing on one of those very fine days on the ocean, clear sky, sun and bright air, foam and bubbles at bow and wake, taut, swelling sails. Bobby felt like a bird rising on a sweep of air. He felt like a dolphin slipping easily in and out of the wave face. The deck tilted mostly one way, and its regular beat at that angle put a rhythm to Bobby's step, a walking uphill-downhill thing that, even with no music and no one singing out loud, made him want to dance. A flourish of limbs embellished the rhythm and energy of the boat as it fell from wave crest to valley. Different steps were needed when it wallowed or balanced on the peak of a rushing ocean ridge. Dr Cross had his violin and while his breath came hard and he could sometimes not speak for coughing, the violin's voice soared and swooped, spiralling on and on with no pause. The new man, Mr Chain, danced. A jig, they said, his feet springing up from the deck again and again as if he did not want to be there at all. His children laughed and clapped their hands and jumped up and down too. Beneath all this, the steady accompaniment of the wind, the sea, the boat's passage. Bobby grinned, laughed out loud with the joy of it all, the bubbling foam in his blood, the salt air in his lungs, the differing rhythms, and now this jig. The shifting deck made it impossible not to be moving. The rhythm of it set his muscles trembling, gathered energy to show these people this strangely dancing man and his children. The violin stopped. Cross was hacking into his handkerchief. The violin and bow held out in one hand. Chain was puffing and red-faced. Bobby let his feet take him. Let the boat and the ocean beneath it set him in motion. His arms were the sails of a ship, the wings of a bird. His legs lifted him into flight, swooping, rising, swooping. He put his own voice to it. A lone seabird, white, trailed the boat, following its milky white path from above. A group of whales came close by, each great glistening back, a flowing arch beneath its spout of vapor. Bobby felt his own shoulders begin to rise and curve his own form merging with that of the whales, even as his little audience's attention moved away from him to them. Over the shoulders of what had been his audience, Bobby saw giants each side of the ship, breathing. Dr Cross turned and Bobby, catching his eye, danced a little of that chain jig, but there was nothing in it now, no energy. The whales, though, There was energy. And this was a path they followed year after year. A watery path that was hard to follow, yet was that of their ancestors and his own, too, since he came from ocean and whales. That was why Maynard gave him the story and the song that took the whale from east of King George Town along the coast to its very shore. The whales were close now. He heard them breathing that rhythm the blonde girl Jane's daughter asked bobby the blackfellow word for dancing he gave her the word all the sailors knew from sydney corroboree he said laughing oh her very earnest face the twins christopher and christine you know named for christ who died for us and came back from among the dead then the weather turned and the wind blew them to the shelter of king george ...where Bobby felt his toes sink in the sand.
1: Thank you, Kim. Um, that Dead Man Dance reflects on those very early relationships... ...between Nunga and European people on the south coast. And it does that through, as you say, um, through the portrayal of these protagonists... who embody this moment of history in a way. And it's really one of my my favourite novels because I really enjoyed imagining... Only one. <laughs> only one. <Sure. laughs> only one. Because I really enjoyed imagining Noongar country and kin before colonisation, before the violence that started and the potential in those early relationships for friendship and curiosity between two cultures. It, that book really made me think about... Or had been lost in in terms of the potential for friendship? How did that story of such um, scale come come to life on the page for
2: you? I'm glad you. I'm glad it came to life. If you think that's the case, it was it was partly um, it was partly fretting over the way. Um, so it's Albany, based upon Albany's early history, and there's this, some historians talk about the friendly frontier. So three years or so before the colony here, there's a, a military garrison perched on the edge of the continent down there. And in, the, in their journals, they talk about the landlords. They talk about Noongar as the landlords. This only goes on for a few years. And they think they're just holding the fort for a little bit to keep the French away, I think. And then they'll be going home. So they talk about the landlords and their it's, and they, and they, in the journals, they say things like, we're heavily outnumbered here. We're gonna have to win them over in ways. And there's some, there's a, there's a, there's a lot in there of Noongar agency, being, accepting their role as landlords, being, being rode around King George Sound to get from one area of country to other. Um, a couple of them even being given guns to take out hunting and coming back with no ammunition and no game and I shudder to think what well, may have been going on there. And things like, and I've said this a number of times, that one, one, one Mokari, a uh, Noongar there, in the soldier's hut and a soldier, a Noongar brother enters the hut and Mokari out to him. Oh, where have you been all the day, Billy boy, Billy Boy? And I thought that was in the, when I encountered that, I thought, what's what's going on? This is a functional statement. Where have you been all day? He's doing it in song, which as I understand classical Noongar traditions is part of the way it functions, in and out of song all the time. And it's also perhaps making a statement to those soldiers there that I've learned your songs. Um, how are you getting on? You haven't bothered to learn anything. So that that agency and that wit and that generosity even um, is is difficult when you're thinking, look what's happened to us. Look how that was betrayed. Um, were they were they stupid to be like that? And I and I came to think no, no, because what we've been offered is almost just polemic or or perhaps a shallow and shabby alternative that's been achieved through brutality. The more I look at, and I'm an ignorant man, but the more I look at classical Noongar world view and its generosity and accommodation, difficult things to do in the history wars and the polemics, the talent, the, gen- the generosity, the inclusion, the improvisation, the willingness to take risks, the innovation, and it includes, as I said before, the ability to move rapidly into literacy. Uh, the new nausea bloke, Salvado, is it, has an account of Noongar kids around 10 years old, within 10 minutes or something, writing the Spanish alphabet in the sand, in standard form and then in reverse order, and being able to, when it's in standard form, reproduce the sounds within 10 minutes, and learning to use sextant, he says, within half an hour or something, when adult sailors, it was taking them months. So that that... That tradition is what I was trying to... That that entering the English languages or entering a, a storytelling tradition, that's what I was working with a lot in that novel. And then also something about literature, thinking, is it enough to just be politically staunch and do the polemical thing or does that just chase people away and doesn't do much at all when literature is this intimate form where you can get in really close, as I was saying before? And it, what I tried to do with that novel was use the... You get a story going which is informed by what I what I believed about Noongar traditions. Get that story going and all the time most of us reading it will know the perhaps the, the orthodox version of our colonial history something like the near conquest of Noongar people and that in itself that, that um, I can't find the word that difference in those two narratives would be held in your head the whole time and then how you'd finish the novel and how I tried to resolve no it's resolution the resolution could become really political in that it could resonate discordantly in the context of our history as we know it this this possibility and there was some you know there was some political effect to that I, I would like to think so I don't know if that's how it came to life but they the, they're the sort of things I was um, playing playing with really? working
1: with. Um, It seems that um, That Dead Man Dance involved um, a substantial amount of archival research and a real gathering of colonial records. How did you kind of navigate that space and recontextualise records that have been written about our ancestors?
2: Yeah, well well, I'd already Benna, the earlier book, I think I'd I'd already done a lot of hard work in the archives already, so that's largely inspired by A.O. Neville's book, um, Australia's Coloured Minority, Its Place in the Community. In the acknowledgements, I wrote it down as Australia's Coloured Minority, their place in our community, which tells you how I felt um, reading it, to make that mistake, and had, in fact because I'd seen in the not only that book, which is about breeding out Aboriginality and separating people from family and filling them with shame, that's their place in our community, as it were, the language of our shared history here, but I'd also read the recurring refrain in lots and lots of local histories, largely unpublished, about the last full-blood Aborigine, and the first white man born, and somehow, out of my uh, fair bit of fair bit of anger and rage, but I'm, I internalise all these things. I I found myself writing at one stage the phrase, "I may well be the first successfully white man born in the family line," and oh, and it it was. Um, was just so much perverse energy. It was, I thought, and it was at a time of I don't know if we remember Colin Johnson of Madruru Nunga. There was uh, a, a sort of inquisition going on in the Nunga community about um, fraud, ho- fraud, hoax, and appropriation. And I thought, this is this is the essence and the heart of the archives. This brutal, vicious stuff. And I'm going to take it on and use it. And if I can get out of this little box, I'm in danger of putting myself in. That will be that will be useful as against posturing something to, to get ahead in the literary or art world. You know, with exploiting one's heritage and one's identity to reverse that. Um, so. So when I got to reading the journals down Albany way, similar quest, though, to, yeah, to, to reconnect, in a way, deconstruct, you know, and reconnect, um, and finding these gems. Henry Lawson met a Noongar in a kangaroo-skin cloak in Albany who spoke fluent French, who'd <laughs> spent 12 months on a French whaling. Oh, wow. And there was... I know I'm going on a bit... There's another story of a, a Noongar, a shepherd, a shepherd writes this into the paper, and he said, I was out there, you know, 100 sheep or something, and this bunch of, about 20 Noongars came over the hill and with their spears. I, I got my gun out and I'm, you know, don't come any closer. And one of them stepped forward and said, you only got one shot, <laughs> and took the rifle from him. And whatever you do to the thing, defused it, you know, took the powder out, then gave it back to him and said, now you've got, you just got a lump of wood too. (laughs) So those, those, you think, this is the agency of, this is what we could yet be. The story's not over yet, you know, to try and deconstruct some of the narratives we've been offered and some of the brutal truths, you know, deal with them. And what else... What else can we get going? And I saw lot, I saw lots of examples, and to, to find those Noongar texts, you know, using English and uh, using colonial place names, that was thrilling. Um, I like that that the
1: story is not yet over, and um, we only have maybe five minutes left. That's pretty hard for me to choose what questions to ask you, but um, if reflecting on that, that the story is not over, your works will have a, a, a life, like a cycle, and they will be, you know, read um, differently by the generations that, that follow us. Do you have a hope? Is there a hope embedded in your novels in a way for what kind of impact they will have?
2: I think there's, I think there's, I think there's hope in them. Um, but in the, that was very flattering what you just said. I hope people will still read them. Um, but you know, narratives and discourse changes rapidly, and that that way of communicating that being you know, absorbed in the mind of one another, in creating a world. And in out of internal space I, I don't I'm not sure if that mode of communication will remain strong I hope I hope certainly hope so um, and I do of course I worry about how I may well be the first successful <laughs> white man born in the family line I worry how that could be read if people don't read in terms of um, layers and resonances and so on so I don't know
1: So perhaps just to end by returning to the theme for tonight, which is still and yet. Kim, could you tell us what is yet to come for you?
2: It's a long time since the last novel. My last novel was 2017. I haven't got the next one yet. But in terms of some of the stuff we've been talking... So literature, I mean, I I, I partly work in that area because I'm shy and I'm introverted, Um, but increasingly some of the work with a subset of the Noongar community, a little clan or a little group where there's trust, which is a difficult thing to sustain, and trying to build community out of recovering language and turning ourselves into instruments for what that language represents, and reconnecting creation stories with landscape in that same sort of way. Um, I find that enormously invigorating. It's difficult for me, the sort of person I am, but I I would like to keep that happening, and small enough so that that increasing community can uh, get the benefits of it being consolidated there and the benefits of some of these things that I've touched on—this other narrative, this storytelling tradition—what we can we can get that up and going again? That's um, yeah. That that drive that drives, me, that drives me a lot. And and I would like I would like the only way I get any sort of fame and glory, and the only way I let people let me finish my sentences, is because I um, write novels. So. I, I've got to try and do that again once or twice.
1: Thank you, Kim. That is a lovely note to end on. And I would like to thank you for being very generous with us and sharing about your work and yourself with us tonight. So, can you join me in thanking Kim again?
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more stories and conversations or to make a donation to the Centre for Stories, head to centerforstories.com.